And now, special look behind the scenes as the hosts of Get a Clue meet with famous podcast producer G Fuzz. Fellas, the work you've done so far is fantastic. Two episodes down, and you're doing great. Yeah, I mean, we're happy to do it. Great information, enjoyable banter, and terrific production value. Thanks, Mr. Fuzz. I'm going to let you guys keep doing it. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to have you do a third episode. But you'll have to do it on spec. Wait, what's on spec? Do do I have to wear glasses? Why would that make any difference? We're doing a podcast. On spec means... It means, babies, you're gonna do it for free. Oh, on spec. Okay, I got it. Alright, so now that, uh... Wait, wait. Was getting paid an option in the first place? No, of course not. Nobody gets paid for podcasts. That's why they're podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I kind of thought that. I just, well, I don't know. I thought maybe it worked like those girls that go online and they talk to guys and get paid. What, like cam girls? <laughs> now, those are some production values. <laughs> Mike, how did you get us mixed up with cam girls? We're not on cam, and you're not even a girl. Oh, yeah. Good call. So we do the third episode. We just have to do it for free. Yes. Uh, are other podcasts getting paid? I really don't know why we're having this conversation, frankly. Uh, I don't know. I just showed up because of Clue. So, we good? No. No. Now let's get into trouble, babies. Welcome to episode three of Get a Clue, the world's best podcast about actor Clue Gulliger. I'm Elby. I'm here with the mic. I'm the mic. I'm here with Elby. I think we did that last episode. Maybe. Are we recycling our jokes I already? I think I said the exact same thing. <laughs> I'm the mic. All right. Cool. Hey, Mike. Hey, how we doing? Uh, okay. You know, I was thinking about Mr. Gulliger and our topic today, which is comedies of the 1980s. Clue was in a slew of films in the 1980s. He had a lot of projects going on. Most of what he's known for, I believe, is the horror films that he worked on in the 80s. That's kind of where he reestablished his name in the 1980s. Yes. But meanwhile, he was working on these comedy films too, and he had varying degrees of involvement in these projects. Some more time spent than others, I would say. Yeah, I think all three of these movies have Clue in common, and they have more in common, but the level of Clue in each movie definitely varies. <laughs> of course. Let's start off though. Let's talk about 80s comedies a little bit here. How do we feel about 80s comedies? I have a lot of love for 80s comedies, but I'm also biased having grown up in the 1980s and then, you know, living through my teenage years seeing those on TV in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting time in comedy because movies in general of the 1980s were very upbeat regardless of what they present, which is characteristic of the 
the decade in general, kind of being a carefree time, with less incidents politically and military, and it really seemed like a time when things were going well and people were just having fun. You look at those comedies, though, now, and it's very different than what you thought back then or even in the 90s when you were watching them 10 years later. <laughs> oh, sure. There's a lot more, uh, I guess, debauchery and recklessness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even some of the more timid 80s comedies, you know, things that are famous like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or The Burbs are not in content R-rated films with that debauchery, but they're very subversive to an extent that you don't really notice because of their tone. Like, they're darker. Right, it's uh, more of a decade of black comedy, I would guess. Or, well, okay, I think the 90s probably, like, hold that crown of dark comedy, but that's kind of left over from the 80s in a way because, you know, even though, like you said, there wasn't so much, like, military involvement, there wasn't, like, a war that we were on the ground, but there was still this underlying political unrest happening because, you know, ordinary people or at least you know, the uh, politically minded ordinary people weren't really happy with what was going on as far as, you know, the economics like Reaganomics and all that. So there's this kind of underlying, I don't want to say fear, but like something that is produced from fear, which, you know, we'll get into more when we talk about more 80s horror movies, because it's very, very apparent in those 80s horror movies, this like people dealing with what's going on politically in this fantastic sort of way. But comedy kind of does the same thing but in a different way at least comedies like you said like the burbs or whatever they have this sort of darker feel to them because that's just people dealing with these these feelings that they have yeah or at least Um, darker topics or even just um like ferris uh bueller for example is a you know upbeat movie but it is at the core about hey this kid just wants to skip school and he's going to do whatever the heck he wants (laughs) <laughs> There's some other stuff in there, too. I mean, like, Cameron's story is kind of sad. But. Yeah, Cameron's the star, you know. <laughs> we didn't know that back then. We didn't think about that when we were younger. It's just, you know, uh-huh. oh, hey, they're going to go have fun. You watch Bachelor Party. It's, hey, they're going to go have fun. You watch Revenge of the Nerds. Hey, they're having fun. You don't notice the rape, for example. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I did. I was a male, apparently. Anyway. <laughs> Speaking of Revenge of the Nerds, you know how we are forgiving to films like that that are more raunchy or more, you know, lightweight, controversial. We're more forgiving to those because they came from this time period. And that is totally fine with me because you can't... Undo it. Yeah, well, you can't undo it, but you also, like, can't judge the past based on what is happening today. Like you said, you can't change it. You can't undo it. So it's best to just either enjoy it and laugh it off. It's every, you know, viewer's right. You can forgive that if you want and just say, eh, you know, it was different. It was funny then. Or at least, eh, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't a time topic that was discussed as much then or I don't know I wasn't yeah, there yeah, yeah, at yeah. least I was four or so <laughs> but you know it's also you're right to look at that now and say hey I'm just not into that anymore because some of these movies didn't age extremely well right especially from the raunchy standpoint mm-hmm. a lot of movies felt like nothing was off the table and not in the way we see today with you know comedians like Johnny Knoxville or you know Sasha Baron Cohen oh yeah, yeah yeah it's not necessarily all just trying to gross out the audience it's decadence it's just saying hey, none of this is really that big of a deal. These drugs, this sex, all of it, it's just part of the landscape. Right. These older movies that like just seem like they are the epitome of the 
excessiveness of the 80s versus the transgressive nature of you know comedy of today there's a big difference yeah i think those comedians today are more aware of what they should and shouldn't do oh yeah they just enjoy you know pushing that limit to get a reaction and that's fine sometimes yeah absolutely you know comedy in general to me it's the hardest genre of film art tv any of it to really say how good bad is because jokes hit everyone differently that's true yeah you know something you think is funny is not gonna or uh, you know i'm not gonna have the same reaction to of course i don't really have a sense of humor so Mm, i don't know about that (laughs) see you laughed you got a little bit so these movies that we're talking about today we have three movies okay so there's a lot of ground to cover here but we have tape heads into the night and i'm gonna get you suck up and they're all very different but they kind of have something that's uh, intertwined in them other than mr Gulliger. i want to know mike what do you think as far as do these movies fit into what we typically think of 80s comedies for me personally i I would say no to all three of them. Kind of like what we talked about. I think for me, when I think 80s comedy as a broad topic, it's those romping, sex, antics, boys will be boys, girls will be girls kind of movies. Because it wasn't just, you know, one or the other. And I think each of these movies comes from a slightly different place, a different mindset from the filmmakers, kind of a different idea. I don't think any of these three movies are full-out crowd pleasers, like for every audience. Uh-huh. They each offer kind of something unique and different. I agree with that one person can enjoy all three yes we're two of those people obviously true spoiler alert we enjoy the films (laughs) definitely different types of people are going to like each one more yes so then the other side of that i'll go off your notes and try and segue so then the other side of that is do these three movies then become cult movies because we all know the 1980s was also a big rise of cult cinema being more accessible and more yeah on every kind of genre in every different way right because the 80s brought us home video yeah you know um, <laughs> sorry i just had to pop for that <laughs> it's all right because you know previously a cult movie was your midnight movie that you would go see in the theater you know you'd go see rocky horror or Eraserhead or you know polyester or whatever you would go see those at midnight in a bigger city the suburbs typically didn't have anything like that right you know so this whole experience was missed out by a lot of people but then of course the rise of home video you can go and rent something and you and your buddies can sit around on a Saturday night and watch it in your living room and kind of have the same experience just really enjoying these films and like you know you keep renting them over and over that kind of thing and it does build up the same type of audience but maybe I don't want to say it's like less prestigious but it just feels more at home you know because obviously it's at home it has that hearth warming feeling to it for a lot of people and that's how movies gain their cult status in the 80s and beyond and i would say in addition to that i almost said below that like there's a tier like there's home video and then (laughs) there's cable Ah. cable was also booming in the 80s things like usa up all night for example or you know just hbo and the movie channels and they would also then kind of create cult movies by broadcasting to an audience this is what you should like even local stations when they would buy up those package deals from Mm -hmm. studios or from distribution houses and just show the same movies like on saturday afternoon for a month yeah and you know that's even more accessible than cable broadcasting because still in the 1980s 
not everybody has cable yet. No. Not quite. You know, there's still some farm people who don't have cable, right, Iowa man? Actually, when we got to the farm, we had a satellite dish. Oh. But there were people that didn't. Yes, I know them, too. Okay. Uh, a lot of people had to come watch wrestling at my house. Oh, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of snacks did you serve at your wrestling parties? That's a different podcast. If anyone <laughs> okay. wants to talk about nachos and wrestling with me later, give me a call. <laughs> it's one nine hundred the mic. Yes, uh, ninety nine cents for the first minute and dollar forty nine every minute after. Don't forget that you get your parents' permission. Cool. The crickets on that. <laughs> <laughs> They have chosen wisely. They're all going to call Elvira instead. It's fine. Yeah, I would. We know. Yeah, so all of that could very well have been why these three movies in particular gained such a cult status. Yeah, and it goes to the point of, you know, you mentioned those cult movies from the 70s. It's a smaller list mostly because there were fewer options. Right. When you get to the 80s, anything can become a cult classic based on, you know, where you're at and how many people are deciding to pull some random movie off the video shelf or find it on TV or tape it and pass it around you know yeah any of those things so the cult market kind of blew up in the 80s alongside every other market that blew up in the 80s totally when we get to tape heads here in a minute we'll revisit this cult topic yes right now i want to get into uh you know i said a minute ago that i don't have a sense of humor that's a joke right you know that's my cute little joke that only i think it's funny and that's fine sense of humor though i want to talk about clue's sense of humor you think clue has a sense of humor i think he does i I do too that was that was a layup (laughs) for you (laughs) thank you two points he has from what i can tell clue gilger has such a weird unique sense of humor there is a video that i came across on youtube when first researching clue in general and you can go to youtube and find it it's called interview with clue gilger with found footage or something like that it's got found footage in the title like it doesn't have like a cute little clever name or anything it's just like interview with clue Gulliger found footage but clue Gulliger found footage should narrow it down for you guys so if you want to go check it out do that put pause because we're going to keep talking <laughs> now this video is very dry it is presented to us as if it is a real thing and clues very serious in it take him very seriously like this is an interview that he's doing and he tells the story so why did you choose to become an actor uh some people say you don't choose to become an actor acting chooses you i have a theory why you become an actor and my theory is that if you're born with a physical impediment or a severe physical disability or when you're very young you have a kind of a psycho somatic trauma or psychological trauma even, uh, that you try to compensate when you get older by going into acting. I mean, that's just a theory I have. And you want people to notice you, to give you positive attention, you know, and to like you, to even love you. So uh, this is something I never talk about. It's very tough for me to talk about it. But when I was born, I had a really bad deal, a severe disability, big bad impediment and the doctor said uh, it's inoperable that mr gulliger mrs gulliger your son won't live past the age of four so my people were middle class people very tough they couldn't handle that answer they didn't have anything except their boy as me so my father said well shit god damn it i will perform the surgery i will operate so he did he rented a small clinic in muskogee oklahoma he hired a nurse and he hired a, a surgeon's assistant and all the neighbors came around and watched 
relatives from the mountains came in and watched. And there was a guy in the neighborhood that had a Bell and Howe camera. When he'd roll up things, whole movie deal, he said, Mr. Gugler, could I film the operation? And my father said, well, <clears throat> I don't see why not. Shit, come on down. Everybody else is down here. <laughs> so he came down and filmed the surgery. About a year ago, this is rough to talk about, guys. About a year ago, I uh, went into a storage place my father had and uh, found a canister. Had the film in it, spools of film. And I said, John, to my oldest filmmaking son, can you uh, put this together for me? Is it salvageable? He looked at it. He said, no, I don't think it is. Pop, pretty far gone. I said, well, try it. So he tried it. And he put together what he could, frame by frame. It's pretty rough. And he put some music with it. I've seen it. Well, let's just look at it. Okay. Adam, can you roll it? And now when we see the video, we slowly start to figure out that this is not a real interview and this is not a real story. <laughs> right. Blue has been having a little fun with us. Yes. And that's the only little thing about the video. Right. It happens that the video was dated 1931, by the way. Clue, as a child, has a very, very large penis. Really large. Very large. Like, like the size of a teenager. Not a teenager's, uh, actually the size of a teenage human. Yes. Yes. Probably a bigger head, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's very gory and it's very gross we see the removal of the large penis it's black and white and, though so it's classy um, well yeah sure sure <laughs> it's art right it's penis art <laughs> of course it's art you know obviously this was made by john Gulliger, or at least obvious to us anyway it's on his youtube page so i mean <laughs> yeah so it's a it's a funny little thing. I mean, it's not exactly my sense of humor, but I understand that it is fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little heavy on the penis for my tastes. <laughs> well, I don't mind that, but I just wanted to say heavy on the penis because it's so large. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's my sense of humor. Yikes. Uh -huh. Anyway. <laughs> It's just a little gory for me. It borders that, like, trauma sort of humor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You could see Lloyd Kaufman putting that together. <laughs> I'm sure he has I mean, it it's okay. Point. Hey, did I ever tell you my story about Lloyd Kaufman? Um, you might have, but you didn't tell them, so tell me again. <laughs> okay. A friend of mine in college put together a, um, like, sort of one-night festival of fans playing at a bar, and... It was called Troma Palooza because he was just trying to market Troma because he was friends with Lloyd somehow. I don't know the logistics of everything, but I. <laughs> this was back in MySpace days, and uh, <laughs> since I was friends with that guy, uh, Lloyd added me on MySpace and started sending me messages, and it was really nice. That's good. Very nice, man. I won't tell you what they said. I'm sure, you just, you know, asked about your favorite books and stuff. Yeah, no. <laughs> It was more innocent than oh. what it sounds like. Well, that's good. So completely unexpected. But I ended up working the merch booth for that night. And like, I'm not the biggest. I mean, I don't know a lot about trauma, honestly. Same. So I was just like working this merch booth. 
and people would come by and say, oh, you know, well, what's your favorite trauma movie? And I would just like point to a different DVD <laughs> on the table every time and just like make up a story on why I liked it. Brilliant. So, yeah. You have told me this, yeah. but hey, it's still good. And they, you didn't tell them. I'm a liar. I lied to sell trauma DVDs. But isn't that the point of selling? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, to an extent. Anyway, we can talk about integrity and business later. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Clue's dark sense of humor that he shares with his son often, we actually got a reply on Twitter from Clue a couple of months ago to a question I had asked you about our loyal correspondent, the Cluebot, who runs our Get a Clue Pod Twitter page. I don't know if you all know that Cluebot is our friend who runs our Twitter page, and it's actually a robot. Yes, he wears a cowboy hat. Yes, he's a cowboy robot, as you would expect from a Clue Gulager loving robot. So I asked you if we think Clue likes robots, and yeah. you put it out there to Clue's son, John, who made this other video that we had watched. And one random morning, we woke up and looked at Twitter, and there's a video on John Gulager's Twitter page, a reply with a man interviewing Clue and asking him what he thinks about robots. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is, you know, pretty cool, because that kind of solved our really, I don't think it was inconsequential question. I was about to negate our question about robots, but, you know, robots are important. So he answered our question for us in an interesting story. Yes. Studio Mike Floyd here, interviewing the legendary Clue Gilliger. What is your opinion about robots? Well, that's, that's kind of uh, getting down with it. Actually, do children watch this, do you know? Yes, I think so. Well, I'll try to make it as clean as I can. I fell in love with the robot once. I know that hmm. sounds facetious, but it's not. And we had a big problem because robots are usually metal. Well, our wedding night was terrible. It was horrendous. Hmm. How should I put this? I was bruised. Some of my anatomy was bruised for four weeks. Oh, dear. Yeah, I didn't realize that the whole persona of a robot was metal. I thought that they were, you know, they developed flesh and all kinds of things because we were so advanced, but they haven't. They're all metal. So I, I had a hard time walking for a long time, but that's neither here nor there, and it's personal, so I shouldn't get into that too much. Very sweet story, a man and a robot falling in love and getting married. <laughs> this is Clue from, you know, recent years. So he's the elder statesman, Clue Gulliger. So his sense of humor has not diminished over the years, we'll say that. You know, going back to even what we mentioned on our first episode, where they were trying to get all their scripts made. You know, these scripts to these, like, obviously, you know, subversive movies that probably would have that dark comedy tinge to them, you know, like the fucking tall movie or the lawman movie or whatever else that they were trying to get made I'm sure had the same borderline gross sense of humor that would have been entertaining at least in some way I hate to put it this way and take the story back to the farm but I so much see this as a kind of rural sense of humor I know a lot of people growing up that were very crass and very you know just to the point not a lot of things were off limits in the jokes I heard oh and yeah, when I hear these kind of things from Clue and see these videos, you know, he's obviously a very articulate man. He's very, you know, intelligent and has great timing, mm -hmm. great, you know, the way he relates these stories, he'll sucker you in. 
that first video oh yeah is very much you know dramatic for about two minutes and then all of a sudden you get the joke right it gets absurd yes that's really like the masterful thing is when you take normal to the absurd yes and that's what is so great about clues comic capabilities and i do think you know we talked about this a little bit comedy can be crude can be just Mm -hmm. awful but the way it's presented can curry favor with the audience Oh, yeah. You get suckered in, and then you're happy to hear what they say, even though then after the fact you go, oh, I can't tell anyone that. I can't repeat that in public. Right. But, hey, that's comedy sometimes. (laughs) You know, a couple of these movies, Clue absolutely gets the biggest laughs. In Tapeheads especially, like, his parts are probably the funniest parts. In Into the Night, really his part is i think the funniest part because it's so uh out of nowhere yeah. and genuine sounding just comes out of the blue and that's a movie that is very for a comedy very tense and full of <laughs> drama but then you have to somehow make it light again and that's kind of what clue does yeah totally the way he does it too like he's not one of these actors that seems like he's phoning in his comedy he has this really great grip on what he's doing and it seems so easy for him it's just this natural thing that clue's able to do where he almost feels like he doesn't care in a way like he's got this cool way of delivering everything yeah definitely i think when he comes on screen in into the night it's funny because he just immediately commands what has been up until that point a very out of control movie and like right. all right shut it down here's what's going down uh-huh. it's that confidence that you're talking about that you think of other comedians of the era one example i guess to me would be leslie nielsen he's more of a spoof character in his roles but part of what's funny about him and like that iconic moment in Naked Gun that you see Gift all the time where he's just like, All right, move on. Nothing to see here. Please disperse. Nothing to see here. Please. And very definitive <laughs> while things are blowing up around him. And that's the kind of presence Clue has at this moment. Clue comes in the movie and takes over. That same energy yeah all right well let's get this show rolling shall we let's do it the so first up we have 1988's tape heads you're free as check this out <laughs> crap you got no ambition zero <laughs> video is the future my baby does my baby video aces reporting for duty the book I wrote when I was broke. Big, 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 big. We have got the competition scared chicken. You're a genius. Sure, yeah. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. So, Mike, what is this movie? Tape Heads is pretty much the story of two young men just out of high school, I believe, working as security guards. Ivan and... Josh. They're working as security guards, but they want to be music video directors. And they start their own production company, Video Aces, doing odd jobs for a local fella in L.A. And as they do, they take on different kinds of video work before they end up making a video come back with the swanky modes, their childhood heroes, a band that exists in the realm of the film. And there's a little bit of madcap humor, a lot of music in reference 
references and just a generally kind of wacky cult flick. <laughs> sure. It is a wacky cult flick. I, I don't know if I can say that I exactly like this movie. Like, it's something that I feel like I should like a whole lot, but... I understand that. It's a very <laughs> unique movie. It's not always fully together, but it has a lot of really interesting stuff in it. So we can start off, though with a little bit of info about how this movie came to be. Let's go back to early 80s Los Angeles, primarily UCLA, the film school there. There was a guy, I think you probably know him, his name is Alex Cox. I think it's pretty well known that Repo Man was Alex Cox's student film while he was at UCLA. But before that, he was hanging around with these guys who started their own production company and they were mainly working on local commercials. And those guys, their names were Jonathan Wax, W-A-C-K-S, not Wax, Wax on, like. Wax off. Gotcha. Yeah, Jonathan Wax and Peter McCarthy. You can find out a little bit more of this scene uh, from Alex Cox's memoir called X Films, True Confessions of a Radical Filmmaker. He is a radical filmmaker, I would say. I would definitely agree with that. (laughs) These are Alex Cox's words here. In 1982, Jonathan Wax and Peter McCarthy set up a production company. We'd been friends at UCLA, and I dropped by to see them at their office in Venice, California, where they were making commercials. Venice was then still fairly run down and had the same representation reputation for dodginess, ethnicity, and riotousness that Toxic Liverpool would soon acquire. I congratulated the boys on their choice location and spacious digs, and suggested that they should also be feature film producers, and hire me as a director. Wax and McCarthy weren't really aspirant producers, of course, nor were they stupid. They were from UCLA and wanted to direct. So we worked out a plan to make three features, one directed by each of us, and produced by the other two. So Alex Cox will sort of come into play again later when Tapeheads is made, just basically using some mm-hmm. of the same actors who seem to be always in Alex Cox movies. So as you can see, Alex Cox pushed those two guys, Peter and Jonathan Wax, into making major motion pictures. Now, along the time Repo Man was coming out, there was a music video director by the name of Bill Fishman who did the music video for the Suicidal Tendencies song called Institutionalized that was on the Repo Man soundtrack. So he kind of started rubbing noses, I guess. Is that the term? Rubbing noses? Mm, Rubbing elbows? I think I would lean towards elbows. Some kind of body part rubbing? Probably elbows. Elbows seems. Okay. That's what I would think. That's probably right. Let's go with it. Okay. (laughs) He was hanging out with Peter McCarthy and they uh, were talking about how cool it would be to have this movie about dudes who were trying to make music videos and kind of riff on the industry at the time, you know, like the the whole uh, movie making slash record industry. So they got together and they wrote the script, which turned out to be tape heads. A lot of the dialogue was modeled after actual interactions that Bill Fishman had with people like in A&R and people like Don Cornelius, who is in this movie, like that whole let's get into trouble baby thing, that was a real <laughs> thing that happened. Like that was straight up like real conversation. But they needed somebody to back this film though after they'd gotten their script written. And of course they go to a few different places and one of them being Michael Nesmith who produced Repo Man with Peter McCarthy. We'll get a little more into detail about Mike Nesmith yeah. in a second, but I want to stay on Bill Fishman here. So Bill Fishman is most notably a music video director and he has a ton of 
of videos under his belt and it's like different types of music like different genres and things like a lot of times you'll have a music video director and they kind of have their own you know for a while in the 90s or whatever like every grunge video would be done by sure, you know sure. the same director or... they'd stick to one kind of scene yeah exactly <laughs> there's a ton of those but bill fishman had such a wide variety of music videos i mean he did things for george clinton george's satellites the ramones and of course the suicidal tendencies video stuff for mojo nixon and also new edition so i mean like he's kind of like everywhere <laughs> he started his career as a cinematographer and he actually worked on are you familiar with the beaver trilogy uh not off the top of my head well the beaver trilogy is uh quite a, you know we're talking about cult movies it's definitely a cult thing. It's a series of films done by a guy named Trent Harris. The first one was a documentary like he had just happened upon this dude in a parking lot and started talking to him and started filming him and he was just this really charismatic crazy dude and this was back in the late 70s. I think it was like 1979 the first one was made. It turns out not only was that guy like just completely interesting but he was also obsessed with Olivia Newton-John and uh, he would perform in drag as Olivia John. So it was very strange, but also just like fascinating. Like just look at this person. Why it's called a trilogy is Trent Harris made a couple more films afterwards that were dramatizations of his first film. So <laughs> he just like kept doing it over. And the second one was uh, made in 1981 and it starred Sean Penn as this guy, mm-hmm. the, the beaver kid is what they called him. And then the third one made in 1985 starred Crispin Glover. So, you know, it's sure. a little weird, right? But what I'm talking about this is Bill Fishman was actually the cinematographer for the, the beaver kid too. Okay. That's kind of where we're working from. <laughs> you know, like this is the kind of filmmaker that Bill Fishman is aspiring to be weird cult stuff like yeah. cool underground right but the thing is later on in his career after he did tape heads he also did car 54 where are you yes and <laughs> a couple of other movies that i don't really think are worth mentioning yeah i remember looking at his filmography and that was the next thing and also the writer of that film is one of the actors in tape heads ah this guy wrote two scripts after being an actor there was falling down which is really well regarded and <laughs> car 54 where are you and that was it. I thought Polly Down was underrated. Yeah, I mean, it's underrated, but you know, it, it, <laughs> it's well regarded among underrated films. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I got it now. So, Peter McCarthy just loved this idea of writing this movie, Tape Heads. And when they got the script finished, they presented it to Mike Nesmith, and Mike Nesmith was basically like, hell yeah. So, <laughs> they took it also because they still needed more financing. They took it to a guy who us 80s kids are familiar with, generally, I think, because he used to be on TV everywhere the president at the time of nbc brendan tartikoff i remember there was like definitely an episode of saved by the bell that has brendan tartikoff in it dumb stupid crazy dangerous stinks (laughs) in one word would i use dope nope these kids are right drugs will hurt your mind your body and your life Hi, I'm Brandon Tartikoff, chairman of NBC Entertainment, and I've got a hit idea for the new fall season. Don't do drugs. There's no hope with dope! 
Yeah, I was looking back on him when I was looking into this movie, and he made a lot of TV appearances while he ran NBC. Like, he would just show up and be mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm the head of the network. Don't do that. Right. It was kind of a, a running gag. Yeah, we, we don't really have that too much anymore. No. I was thinking about, you know, back then, like, you could, well, there's a couple. Like, okay, I can name Brandon Tartikoff, and I can name Michael Eisner. Yeah. But, like, I feel like we knew the heads of networks back then. I don't know. Maybe Networks were also a bigger deal back then, I think, is another part of it. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, an interesting thing, too, with that, Brandon Tartikoff went on after he had been the head of NBC to work at Paramount Pictures, and a script came to him in the early 90s, and he looked at it and said, hey, I already made this movie. It was called Tapeheads. <laughs> okay. You know what that movie was? No. Wayne's World. Oh, Wayne's World, huh? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting bit of background where, like, you know, Wayne's World is something that people of our generation really grew up with, and the guy who helped fund it got it and was like, oh, this is Tapeheads. <laughs> That kind of gives you an example of where this movie exists, where it's kind of a cult thing in the sense of, I don't want to say Wayne's World's a remake of it, because obviously it's not, but it is in that same kind of world of, hey, there's just these two weird guys wandering through the rock and roll scene and making stupid videos. And yeah, behind the scenes, people go, oh yeah, Tapeheads did that. But the general public, no one would even think that. Hmm, that's interesting. Like, sometimes I think that everything is remakes of everything. So, yeah, I can definitely see the, the similarities. Peter McCarthy said that Tartikoff had given this the fastest green light ever, apparently. So yeah. Maybe he was, like, really, really passionate about Tapeheads, and he was like, Wayne's World, no. Right, yeah, he was yeah. really apparently into the movie. He hated the title. They went through a lot of different <laughs> titles for Tapeheads, and they never really listened to the commentary on the DVD. They don't really mention any of them, but they just mention how he wanted 70 other titles, not Tapeheads. Really? <laughs> he said it sounded like a disease. I was going to say maybe it kind of sounds like a, a drug reference or something. There's that too, you know. The, I mean, that would be my kind of first reaction to it, is it's, you know, uh-huh. these kids that are addicted to this crazy videotape stuff. To video it, addicted to video. <laughs> They're like VHS collectors today. Yeah, pretty much. But a little cooler. <laughs> oh. That was maybe hmm. too much of a burn there. Sorry, guys. VHS collecting is underrated. Hey, the mic. Have you heard of MTV? I've heard of MTV. Okay. I've at times watched MTV, although not nearly enough to understand anything that I would see on MTV. Okay. I mean, I know that you grew up in Iowa and you live in Iowa, so I mean, just making sure. It it was difficult. Eventually, we got into the satellite dish game in the 90s, and by then, MTV was mostly, you know, Jenny McCarthy and like the video for that Robin Hood song with Kevin Costner, that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. I mentioned MTV because Michael Nesmith... No, okay, we all know who Mike Nesmith is, right? We don't have to say that Mike Nesmith was in the monkeys. I mean, everybody knows that, right? We don't it's have true. to say that. He's definitely okay. a monkey and not the animal, the band. Yeah, he was in the band, the monkeys, and he was the one that wore the hat. So, like, we don't have to mention it. No, I just want to make sure for, like, our young viewers, if there's, like, teenage Clue fans out there listening to this, uh-huh. He wasn't an animal. No. He was a human in a band. Well, he is a human still. Well, he's an animal and a human, yes. We are all animal. Mm-hmm. But he was not a primate. No. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about science and evolution, maybe. But... Okay, let's just go with it. He was a monkey. <laughs> okay, he was a monkey. Well, uh, he is a surviving member of the monkeys. Mike Nesmith is credited by a lot of people for inventing MTV. 
post monkeys mike was performing as a solo artist and he was asked by his recording label to create a promo video for his single called rio in 1977. now music videos at the time were basic performance videos Mm -hmm. or like concert footage they were used to just kind of shop around to different markets like if an american band wanted to go to europe they would shop them around the european market uh european bands would send their videos over to america reason it was really nothing huge at the time but when they asked him to do this he kind of i don't want to say misunderstood but he might have misunderstood (laughs) so instead (laughs) instead of making a conventional performance video he created this comedic short film kind of where he like flies through space and there's funny things about it okay you know he turned this in and his record label is like um what do we do with this So, like, there was absolutely no outlet for videos like that at the time. The single, Rio, ended up kind of bombing, and Nesbeth had really enjoyed making the video though and so he was kind of brainstorming because he thought he had really hit on a cool idea. So he was like, why don't we make a broadcast component for music videos like radio is for records like have a you know 24 hour channel we can watch music videos on so he kind of made a pilot for this idea and included what he called video jacks which is how we get the term vjs right and he called the show pop clips he started shopping it around got a lot of rejections but he went to warner brothers and the executive there his name was john lack he was absolutely intrigued by this idea like thought it was fantastic and he loved this concept of like a tv station that just played music videos around the clock warner brothers didn't really have all the money for this at the time so they partnered up with American Express. From that, MTV was launched in 1981, August 1st, 1981, for you nerds out there. And they had offered Mike Nesmith the position of production head. And he was like, nah, it's okay. He's like, I already figured it out. I don't want to do the work. Yeah, like, I don't have to do this. But yeah. he was also busy. He had made a feature film called Elephant Parts that is kind of like a Kentucky Fried movie, if you will. Just a long skit movie. And then also he was working on the television version of that, which he called Television Parts. He was kind of busy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So Mike Nesmith did not work for MTV, but he created it, basically. The Beverly Hills, land of Hollywood dreams. Here at his hillside home, the author of Elephant Parts, executive producer of Repo Man, and inventor of MTV. Ex-monkey Michael Nesmith ponders, where are the others now? What happened to his little hat? (laughs) Okay, wait, wait. Here at his hillside home, author of Elephant Parts, executive producer of Time Rider, and inventor etc etc filmmaker michael nesmith ponders the depths of his latest film tape heads is that it tape heads that's it you know every filmmaker hopes to make a great and lasting film a film of such scope and depth that it changes our lives somehow that lifts us up and gives us hope maybe do something about the smog a film that could drive a car and speak german and run errands and you know pick up the cleaning things like that a film that you could watch after a really big meal and still not blow chow well i think i've made a film like that with tape heads and that is our history lesson (laughs) no and that's what mtv still is yes no. Yes, no, MTV. It's... Music videos 24-7. We can dream. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It's very cool. 
God, I loved MTV when I was a kid. I, I was late to it, like I said. I, was, I wasn't that cool. <laughs> okay. And that's relevant to our film because our film was about music video production. Right, which seems, you know, now like something that's not a big deal, but this definitely... You can smell MTV on tape heads. Like, that was the time and the <laughs> yeah. place. That was a big deal. There's kind of a reverence to the music video industry, mm -hmm. to yeah. the music industry itself, but then also the people, you know, behind that wave of music videos and bringing new ways to experience music to the masses. Oh, totally. And, you know, there are so many film directors whom everyone loves who got their start doing music videos. And I don't think that that is talked about enough. No, we don't. We don't talk about that. We don't enough. realize it. <laughs> I've seen, looking back at filmographies, I'm like, oh, wait, what? That's where that came from? Yeah, music videos are important. And mm -hmm. it seems as if they're not really being made too much anymore. But they are. They're just on YouTube. Right. You know, like, you, you can't really see them on television too much. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe, I mean, I know there used to be, like, on-demand channels where you could watch music videos, too. But, I mean, that was, like, ten years ago I saw that. So, I don't even know. Yeah, because then VH1 came along, and they actually were doing music videos after MTV stopped. Then there was MTV2, and they, like, were all mm -hmm. music video for a while. And then they, I don't even know anymore. I'm out of the MTV loop at this point in my life. <laughs> well, okay, so MTV was around at the same time as VH1, and it seemed as if VH1 kept playing videos a little bit longer than MTV did after they switched to mostly uh, original programming or, mm. or whatever it is. After that, MTV 2 picked up the music videos, but then, of course, they went the way of original programming as well, or rerunning, you know, marathons of road rules or whatever. Right, reruns of what was on MTV. Yeah, uh, MTV Classic came along a few years back. Everyone was excited about that because it was supposed to be like a real throwback to playing mm -hmm. music videos. And when the channel debuted, they replayed the first hour of MTV. So it started with, you know, the Apollo clip that they played and then, you know, the Buggles video for Video Kill the Radio Star and etc, etc, etc. I was really skeptical of that at the time. I would like to put that on record. Like everyone else was like, oh my god, MTV, heyday, MTV is going to be so good. And I'm like, no, give it a week. You saw through the corporate evil yeah, like within a week, they, what were they showing? They were showing Ghostbusters. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, uh, whatever. Wait, the old Ghostbusters or the lady Ghostbusters? No, the older one. Oh, okay, just making sure. The lady Ghostbusters hadn't been made yet. Oh, okay. Well, that, this was it before that. wasn't that. No. I mean, this was like, I was living in Texas, so... It was within the past four years. Oh, but okay. Yeah, I don't even know what's on. I don't have cable anymore, so I have no idea yeah, what's on. But. can't remember the last time I saw MTV. <laughs> it's sad to say it that way, but like not <laughs> anything I would expect something interesting to come from, you know? Well, they did have that Scream series. I, like, I did like that, but I didn't watch it on there. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah they did a couple of horror series. They did yeah. uh, Scream and the Dentine Wolf. Yeah. Some really cool directors did music videos. I mean, even David Fincher did music videos, so I know how everyone loves David Fincher. I mean, there's a whole list. Yep. I was going to say Michael Bay, but that might not be as cool. <laughs> might not. No, probably not. Anywho, sorry I brought in Michael Bay and killed the podcast. Oh my god. Spike Jones. Michelle yeah. Gondry. There you go. Spike Lee did music yeah. videos. He did a fishbone video. John Singleton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people. Music videos are important. Yes. Anyway, speaking of MTV, you know, this movie, Tapeheads, turns me into Matt Penfield. Matt Penfield from 120 Minutes. Now, that's a 90s staple. You probably aren't too familiar with Matt Penfield just because you just said you didn't really watch MTV. I, like I've said, I, I was not that kid. Okay. Well, I'm speaking to the kids who know Matt Penfield right now. And when I say Tapeheads turns me into to him all these connections just start firing in my brain and i just like rattle off all these things so 
welcome back to 120 Minutes. So in this movie we have blues funk musician King Cotton, not to be confused with the group King Crimson, which was a band that featured guitarist Adrian Ballou, also famous for working with Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz of Talking Heads on their side project Tom Tom Club. Now Tom Tom Club had a song on the Married to the Mob soundtrack, which was of course directed by Jonathan Demme, whom we all know did the Talking Heads documentary film Stop Making Sense, but he also directed 1986's Something Wild, the soundtrack of which was not only curated by David Byrne of the aforementioned Talking Heads, but features 80s new wave ska group Oingo Boingo. Coincidentally, Oingo Boingo was a huge influence on ska punk fusion band Fishbone, who were featured heavily in tape heads, but this time are playing a bizarre mix of country and western and credited as Ranch Bone. Speaking of ranch, do you know how many performers require ranch dressing in their backstage writers? It's insane. I'm Matt Pinfield. That's my best Matt Pinfield. I, I, I knew some of that. Yeah. <laughs> this is what he would do and like this movie is full of those kinds of connections so we can talk about those connections you want to get into that let's do it okay <laughs> so yeah me being like movie nerd man and not understanding the mtv world cusack and robbins were what brought me to this movie back in the day when i was probably late teens early 20s and you know i'd seen other stuff they'd done you know the big ones this was curious when i found it because i was coming from the things i'd seen them do that were critically acclaimed and big hits Shank Redemptions and Gross Point Blanks and Say Anythings and, you know, things that don't seem to exist in the same world as tape heads. Uh -huh. And of course, you look back and it makes a lot more sense. You know, I was kind of thinking as I looked at it, John Cusack was 20 when they filmed this movie. Tim Robbins, I was a little older, I think he was 28. They had already worked on a movie before this. The Sure Thing, uh, I believe Cusack's first starring role. I'm not going to look that up, but I feel like that's accurate. <laughs> that was three years before this, and Cusack was playing a college kid, even though he was 17. Robbins was playing like, it seemed like a soon-to-be father, like a very uh, straight player. Like a straight and narrow type of guy? Straight and narrow type of guy, like his character and his wife like sing folk songs as they drive down the road. <laughs> okay, so it's like a hokey thing. Though. Yeah, it was, it was hokey, and it was like, you know, you would never think of them as friends. But they became friends okay. making that movie, and they started working together on stage um, in the years between that and Tape Heads. Right. Robbins had his own little theater group. They worked together. Yep. Yeah, and that's where Cusack was working in between the movies he was doing as a teen star. Teen star. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you look back into like John Cusack interviews, he didn't have a good experience back then. Mm. If you look on his IMDb page, the first quote is him calling being a teen star disgusting. So around, I would assume this time, his agent had called up Michael Nesmith and said something to the effect of, hey, do you have anything like Repo Man? Because mm -hmm. that's what Johnny wants to do. Okay. And that's how both him and robbins ended up auditioning for this movie didn't they improv their entire audition i think they did yeah and they auditioned for the opposite roles is the other part that was interesting hearing about it oh that happens a lot yeah so robbins would have been the zany character that cusack played and cusack would have been kind of the more straight man which i think is robbins is better fit to yeah you know i definitely i don't think that tim robbins would have been good as ivan because he doesn't really dance very well i don't know if you noticed that in this movie he's really like stiff yeah and cusack actually was a trained ballet dancer oh wow growing up. they talk about that in the commentary of how good a dancer he was and how they gave him like oh. more dancing scenes but he didn't want to rehearse he he just like 
was happy to do it. Okay, no wonder. That's really surprising. I noticed that really this last time that I watched this movie, I was like, wow, John mm-hmm. Cusack's got some There's moves. that scene on the roof where they're just randomly dancing at how well yeah. things are going, and yeah, he is killing it. On the commentary, Catherine Hardwick points out, man, he's a great dancer, and they start talking about it just because it's so well done. That's great. So my theory, specifically related to John Cusack doing this movie, you know Better Off Dead. Everyone knows Better Off Dead. Mm-hmm. I don't know, are you a fan of Better Off Dead? Um, I yes. I'm known to quote Better Off Dead sometimes. I think it's a really funny movie. Yeah, it's a very quotable, very fun Mm -hmm. movie. You know who does not like Better Off Dead at all? John Cusack? John Cusack. Wow. He actually walked out of the first time he saw the movie. Really? Yelled at the director. He had to do another film with Savage Steve Holland, One Crazy Summer, Mm -hmm. because he had a contract, but he hated that movie so much. He hated Better Off Dead? Yeah, Hmm. which is kind of crazy. So I have a theory that, you know, he was 17, 18 making those movies. The Sure Thing, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer. I feel like this was the point where he was kind of just tired of being the joke and wanted to be in on the joke. And if you watch him in tape heads, he's zany. The reason his character is the way it is because he's doing that. Mm. There's a scene early in the movie where they have to, like, make an excuse to their boss, and he's going on this rant about how they saved this famous cellist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From an accident or something, Uh and he talks about how, like, he's the most famous cellist this side of Yo-Yo Moss. (laughs) Which is an obvious... We all know Yo-Yo Ma. That's the only cellist anyone knows. Right. Fishman and Nesmith talk about how he added that kind of stuff because he wanted people to realize this guy's just ridiculous. Oh, okay. He's a ridiculous dumb guy just trying to make fun out of life. Right, right, okay. So that I think to me, like I mentioned, coming at it from looking at Cusack and Robbins now, it's cool to see he seems to be coming into his own and doing what he wants to do in this movie and I think that's one of the more interesting things to me from my background of watching is you know, when I saw it when I was younger, I'm like, this is just weird. Why wouldn't <laughs> you just do the, you know, geeky 18 guy like you always did? But you watch it later and you know more about how Hollywood is and how people's career have gone and they're having fun with it it's a really i mean we've talked about all the people working on this movie are not necessarily there to be high art in the way you know a lot of filmmakers are they're just trying to make something <laughs> off the wall yeah wacky and fun yeah and, um, and like a, a send up to their own too yes that's pretty cool actually to think about wow you know maybe we should look at more artists careers in that way try to get a better understanding of like what choices they made and why they made those choices i mean that's kind of why we're doing this clue podcast that's a really cool uh, perspective about john cusack there so thanks mike you got it <laughs> yeah i did a cheesy thumb up with that too just so you know yeah i bet you did yeah it's pretty obvious that they're having fun in these roles and they had fun even after the movie and everything like I know that when they did their press tour to promote tape heads they were scheduled to appear on Good Morning America uh, with Joan London and the interview just went way off the rails and ABC decided to shelve it because apparently they were too unprofessional during the interview because they were actually in character also Michael Nesmith took them to music events during Uh the filming in character and they were just like hanging out as Ivan and Josh right video aces and you know living that life Right. I don't even classify that as method acting because, you know, a lot of times method acting is just like... It's like in their head. Yeah. This is more just goofing around. Yeah, exactly. While you were saying in their head, I was doing a jerk off motion to myself, so... <laughs> That's fair. You <laughs> know, I'm kidding. Like, I have respect for method actors. Good job, Daniel Day. You did it. Yeah, sometimes. Every time we mention method actors, it's like, oh yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis, he's out there somewhere living as someone else. <laughs> and he believes it. Living as someone else. <laughs> 
No, he's not acting anymore, right? He's never acting again. Right, he's retired. Mm, okay, that's nice. There are lots of people who worked on this movie who were very cool during this time period. Catherine Hardwick, you mentioned a second ago, yes. is one of them. She was the production designer. She seemed to be kind of everywhere in the 80s and 90s. She worked on tape heads, of course. She also worked on I'm Gonna Get yep. You Sucker which you know we'll get to that too my favorite movie that she worked on is tank girl i'm a big fan of tank girl even though it's kind of crappy it's fun crap yeah it's fine it could be done better and then she went on to direct twilight so that's her big claim to fame yeah yeah she was doing interesting stuff like 13 and lords of dogtown and then all of a sudden tape heads and then didn't she do i want to say it was the nativity story did she it was one of those like historical jesus movies oh i don't know whichever one had the girl from whale rider whale rider you don't know whale rider no uh, she was like a 13-year-old uh, Academy Award nominee, this indie flick whale writer, New Zealand-born oh. actress. I don't oh. remember her name at all. And I don't hardly remember the movie. This is a terrible story, I guess. But well, that's okay. She became an actress, and then she was in a Catherine Hardwick Jesus movie. Oh, huh. Also worked on this movie, <laughs> a guy named Bohan Bazelli, who's a cinematographer. He's a, a cool cinematographer, I think. He works with Gore Verbinski a lot. He did The Ring and A Cure for Wellness. He's responsible for the looks of those movies, which I love. It's good by the way by the way i don't think tape heads exactly has that style <laughs> no it's a different yeah it has some really good cinematography yeah um, yeah yeah it's not that yeah well that's bohan and he's one of my favorite cinematographers who else who else who else the next person on my list is a guy named nigel harrison who was the music supervisor for this movie i do not know nigel harrison i'm sure you don't and i'm not making fun of you by saying that <laughs> I'm not. He was a member of Blondie. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember them mentioning that. He was a bass player, wasn't he? Yes. He was the bass player from Blondie. He also, this is something that he is, I don't know, about known for, but this was one of the highlights of his career, I guess. He was uh, friends with Iggy Pop. Okay. That'd be a highlight you know, for a lot of people. <laughs> well, you know how Iggy Pop was really famous for having avant-garde and typically very violent stage shows. I would just call them weird, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm simple, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. There was this one performance he did where he called it Murder of a Virgin. And uh, this took place at Rodney Bingenheimer's club in Los Angeles. And he stabbed himself repeatedly with a rusty steak knife. Now, this is not to be confused with the famous time that he performed at Max's Kansas City and he cut himself to pieces with broken glass. Like, that was a different time. <laughs> okay. This was another time that he was, like, really freaking bloody on stage. But, different self-mutilation. Yeah, it. yeah. And it was this big deal. He had found some teenager at a Denny's that was near the club and was like, hey, you want to come be my virgin? <laughs> and he was supposed to sacrifice this kid on stage, but he ended up cutting himself anyway. But he... He had like a dude in a Nazi uniform with a whip and this really weird ritualistic self-harm thing that Iggy always did and everyone was just flocking to this club because Rodney Bingenheimer was trying to promote it like ooh Iggy's gonna be here you know come see what he's gonna do <laughs> you know so anyway Nigel Harrison actually played bass at that show because Iggy at the time didn't really have a band so he asked his friend Nigel to come play bass so I think that's a really I don't know I don't want to say cool thing I mean it's yeah. something interesting for sure but uh yeah and so Nigel put together the soundtrack 
for this movie and okay. uh, the score and, and everything got that lined up. And you mentioned Fishbone earlier. Yes. Who are credited as doing the music for the film. Yes, they did. did. a lot of that. So they were hired to do that stuff and then they told them, well, we'll do it, but we want to be in the film. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we already hired enough bands. We don't need anyone. <laughs> well, we need a country band. Yeah. And that's how Ranchbone happened. Yeah, Ranchbone. They were like, fine, we'll just be the country band. Yeah, I really like Ranchbone, actually. <laughs> it, it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's, I would like to have some Ranchbone records, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, so Fishbone's a big part of this movie. And a big part of I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker, right? Yeah, that's true, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we should probably just mention that Peter McCarthy was also the producer of I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. So there's a lot Correct. of cameos. A lot of overlap. Yeah overlapping cameos so fishbone's one of them mm-hmm. king cotton is another one of them yep i mean we can list those off until we're dead probably what's cool about fishbone and i think that john cusack and tim robbins are like well okay i think they're big fans of fishbone they are big fans of fishbone yes robbins was it bull durham there's one of his movies uh-huh. he was seen in like a fishbone shirt yeah because he was a big he's fan. wearing a fishbone shirt in bull durham cusack wears a fishbone shirt in say anything and you know that freaking boombox scene and say anything yes i've heard of the scene i've seen the scene okay he's standing outside what's her face's window and he's blasting peter gabriel at her by the way i'm not really a fan of saying anything oh i'm, I'm a fan but it's okay uh, <laughs> i just hate the ending i'm a dreamer i hate the ending man i wish it had a graduate ending yeah i get that <laughs> anyway anyway so that's not really peter gabriel while they were filming he was not playing peter gabriel he was playing fishbone can you imagine just that scene actually being fishbone it'd be be way different yeah (laughs) i like peter gabriel i do i don't really like that song it's a good song i mean it's not not really into it it's it's more of a like i got nothing i don't know Uh, okay okay well it's not my favorite peter gabriel song but i don't know maybe i'd like it more if it wasn't associated with the movie that could be yeah it's it's impossible to separate that song from that movie true at this point yeah absolutely and then especially when you hear like the full song and you're like wait this is only supposed to be like 20 seconds (laughs) while he's holding the boombox like it's not supposed to be a full song right that's what i was trying to get to before when i didn't know what i was saying oh okay okay well i was trying to get to was if you were playing fishbone that would be more of a way to my heart so that, yeah, that would be. Any of you guys out there listening, maybe maybe Andrew, my husband, if he's listening. Wink, nudge. Yeah, play fishbone. You lying piece of sack of shit, slut, trash can, scummiest dirt bag, bitch. <laughs> I feel like you like sleep too much what? for your sleep to be interrupted like that. Oh my god. Yeah, okay, you're probably right. <laughs> I like sleeping. Like play it while you're eating lunch or something, not yeah. while you're sleeping. Yeah, there you go. I'd be mad. I hate getting woken up. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so fish bar. Uh, King Cotton. King Cotton is a person I'm not really familiar with, and I had to research for this movie because like i always knew who he was just because of this movie and he's yeah he's the most iconic part of the movie yeah he's he plays roscoe right of roscoe chicken and waffles yes the first video that ivan and josh do and that kind of gets them on the map right although it's not much of a map at that point but <laughs> that roscoe's chicken and waffle song they play it again over the end credits roscoe's the name and they call me the king of the chicken and the waffle thing. I sit now read my lips and friends don't miss a word. Cause the grandmaster's gonna 
King Cotton <laughs> apparently got to eat like free at Roscoe's, the real Roscoe's, for like two years after this movie came out. Oh, nice. Like they got that much business from that. Yeah. Well, it's weird to me that they actually let them use their name and everything. Yeah, you don't see that a lot. Right. Like I think of the example of uh, Coming to America where, you know, there's McDowell's. Uh-huh. And it's that obvious like play against McDonald's, but they don't say McDonald's. Yeah. Like, if you said McDonald's, you would get sued. Now, Roscoe's isn't McDonald's, but... Right. Yeah, you don't see real restaurants doing that kind of stuff a lot of times. You would think that they would make something up. Like, in, in Black Dynamite, they make up, uh, what is it, chili and donuts? Yep. You know? Yep. <laughs> so, like, you would think they would make something up instead of actually using Roscoe's. But I guess, you know, of course, mm. they probably got their permission. I don't know. Maybe it's an L.A. thing. Like, there's that big donut yeah. that's always in movies. That's a real place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Randy's from Iron Man. From Iron Man. I don't Man. know. I immediately, you know, you see that image of Iron Man sitting in the big donut, like that's stuck in my head. I'm a oh. nerd. Hmm. <laughs> Anywho, it was in Dope, too. There, there's an obscure one. Dope? I like that movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Oh, it's cute. It's cute. It is. We're way down the rabbit hole. It's okay, though. Yeah, that's right. Uh, King Cotton, though. So I looked him up, and his real name is Dickie Sony, and he is a Texas blues singer, and he got his name King Cotton from reading about Elvis Presley. You know how Elvis liked to eat bacon? True. You know how Elvis, like, every day at breakfast would eat a pound of bacon? That makes sense. People think that's an urban legend, but no, it's true. He ate a pound of bacon every morning. And his favorite kind of bacon was a local Memphis brand called King Cotton. And so this guy, Dickie Sony, thought that was hilarious and decided to make his stage name King Cotton. The more you know. Yeah. King Cotton had a popular single in 1982 that K-Rock, K-R-O-Q, the famous Los Angeles radio station played. I've never heard of it, and it's not on Spotify, but I did find it on YouTube, so it does exist. Okay. is interesting that single especially is interesting because it's like this weird mix of blues and funk and you think oh this guy is a blues singer he's going to be like bb king or um right i don't know lead belly or somebody he does not look like those people no he does not and he's a little he's got a little broader of an influence i would say um like he opened for a bunch of new wave acts in the early 80s like talking heads hey there's a connection anyway that's all i know about king cotton really that's more than I did, and that's kind of par for the course. Like, this movie is full of musicians, mm-hmm. famous musicians, that I have no idea who they were. Well, do you know... Now, there's a couple really obvious cameos. <laughs> okay. There's Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. I knew him. Mm-hmm. There's Ted Nugent. Uh-huh. I honestly probably wouldn't have recognized him, but then I'm like, I know that guy <laughs> from somewhere. You know what Ted Nugent looks like. Yeah. No, he wasn't wearing leopards in the movie, I think, is why maybe I didn't notice him or a cowboy hat. He also wasn't carrying an assault rifle, so... That's true. You know, Ted Nugent today looks a lot different than Ted Nugent we know of. <laughs> also is regarded much different. Nesmith is in there for a second, too. I was about to say, Mike Nesmith has a small cameo as the Golden Springs water guy. I'm not going to say what it was for, you know, the children, but they wanted to use something other than Golden Springs on the company, but they Hmm. got it shot down. Hmm. 
Hmm. Anyway. That's subversive. Yes. Well, I think the two biggest musical, I don't even want to say cameo, because it's not really cameo. They have, like, full parts. Yes. Are Junior Walker and Sam Moore, who play... The Swanky Modes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Junior Walker is, uh, of course, from Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Very popular soul singer. Also, uh, Sam Moore was in a group or a partnership, I guess you could say. It. Well, I don't know. What do you call that? Sam and Dave. Collaboration? Collaboration. There you go. <laughs> These guys are like really part of R&B history and it's a yes. big deal that they were in this movie. Now the filmmakers actually came up with an entirely fictional history of the Swanky Modes to be sent out in the press kit for this movie. So they <laughs> really wrote a lot of stuff. Like there's a timeline where everything that happened to them in their lives pretty much are in this. They had album covers. Yeah, a lot of work um, Catherine was Catherine talked about putting together through the years like a disco album uh, uh-huh. like following the trajectory of music they made out their filmography and made album covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Like It's so detailed. There's stuff like okay, so they performed at the Apollo Theater on this day. They performed on Ed Sullivan on this day. They performed for Queen Elizabeth on this day. Nice. You know, and then there's like personal stuff like Lester marries a Norwegian woman on this day and Billy goes <laughs> to India to study with Ravi Shankar. And you know, there are all these things that plausibly could have happened but they're, you know, kind of outlandish. Like they were going to have a reunion tour at some point but their bus broke down like in Michigan and uh, Lester bought a farm and started to raise rhubarb because they couldn't go any further you know (laughs) there's a story about Billy's yacht had hit a landmine in the Persian Gulf and he spent a year in Iranian prison. You know, like there's really crazy stuff that they <laughs> had done. Um, uh, one is they landed a deal with Princess Cruise Lines but annulled their contract when they found out that they also had to be bartenders. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's like really funny stuff and it's such a cool way to promote this movie. Like the very last thing was they finally did a performance together in Santa Monica where Bill Fishman was in a attendance and saw them and and talked them into doing tape heads so they're definitely a real group it's very real even listening to the filmmakers they really loved what these guys brought to the movie they come in about halfway through the film we talked about how they had been involved in skits and short videos and stuff and the first half of the movie kind of feels a lot of that it's when the swanky modes come in that it really kind of becomes that okay now here's what we're building towards (laughs) now there's a narrative Right, yeah. <laughs> Other than just two dudes goofing around, like pouring paint on mm-hmm. bands and taping it. Oh, I love that. I love that video. <laughs> What's the name of that group? I don't even remember. The song was Baby Doll. I can't remember what Oh, they, yeah, Baby Doll. It was supposed to be Devo, but Devo oh, yeah. wouldn't do the movie. So they found, like, random... Norwegian Right. Guys. Well, the song is Devo still. That video is so obviously an influence of OK Go videos later. Yeah. Oh, there's uh, another cameo we have here from the music industry. I mean, there's several, right. but <laughs> one I like especially is uh, Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys. He plays an FBI agent at the end of the movie. Yeah, I learned who he was and the story behind why it's so funny what they do with him in the movie right. from the behind the scenes because there's a direct joke about him said by him 
that if you're in the know, it's good. Right. I was not, so I missed it. But I'm sure you, knowing things. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, he got in trouble in the, was it 19, I want to say 1985? He was brought up on obscenity charges because he decided to put a painting by H.R. Geiger into one of the Dead Kennedys records. And this painting is called Landscape XX, which is also known as the Penis Landscape. So, oh. uh, <laughs> yeah, I think mean, he thought it was seriously just the coolest piece of art and it really helped symbolize what he was going for for the record and, and the record by the way was called Frank in Christ yeah he was brought up on obscenity charges because you know at the time it was that uh uh what are they called the typical people oh my god what are they called it's like the MPAA but for music oh yeah I, I want to say FAA and that's obviously not right <laughs> <laughs> that's a different thing PMRC the Parents Music Resource Center which was you know they were trying to censor a lot of artistic expression in the early 80s and the mid 80s and the late 80s well the entire 80s right you know uh, famously Frank Zappa testified against them and, and stuff like that but eventually Jellyby offers his case was dropped like he won his his trial because I mean it's art man don't even worry Jello you're cool okay we're talking about cameos a lot and I want to know your opinion here Mike about what the difference between a cameo and a bit part is you know a cameo to me is just really really short just a quick like weird yeah. now in this movie for two seconds or you know like that kind right. of thing. Right. I mean Alfred Hitchcock is what you would think of first I think well I, what I would think of first but he made his you know obviously it wasn't just his gimmick he was making movies people wanted to see but it became a running gag of oh look there he is oh look uh-huh. there he is like it's just a walk on kind of thing. Right right. Now there can be cameos with you know a bit of dialogue that play in we were talking about Wayne's World earlier that has Robert Patrick the T2 tie in. Right. That's obviously a cameo even though he has a line. Wayne's World 2 Charlton Heston shows up as a better actor to, you know, deliver a little line. <laughs> right. To me, it's something that it's obvious that it doesn't necessarily fit the movie, but it's an in-joke with the audience. Right, because there's a few different players in this who, I don't know if I would call them cameos, like uh, Xander Berkeley has a part. Yeah. Also, Xander Schloss has a <laughs> funny part. He's the heavy mm-hmm. metal dude. So, like, I don't know if I would exactly call them cameos so much as just bit parts. Yeah, the most famous musical person in this movie is probably um, one we haven't mentioned yet, Courtney Love. Oh. Has a very, very (laughs) small part. (laughs) I wouldn't call it a cameo. It's just that that's who they had at the time, and that's kind of where she was at with those people. Right. uh, I like to call them the Alex Cox set of actors with Courtney and both the Xanders that I just mentioned. Cy Richardson from Repo Man and Straight to Hell is the bar tender yeah but it's not like a a cameo it's just he was around (laughs) right right like these were their i don't want to say friends but i guess maybe they're friends Mm -hmm. you know because yeah there's a lot of people that are famous that are in this movie we haven't even got to yet that have really small parts totally but i wouldn't say really cameos Right. I guess we can go ahead and get to that. I mean, I'm definitely thinking about Connie Stevens and Doug McClure. Yeah, they play uh, Josh's parents, and they were cast primarily because they wanted them to be the TV version of parents. Yeah. So they put two TV actors in as his parents. On the other hand, you meet John Cusack's father, famous person in a very small role, Lyle Alzado, former football player and then turned actor. I was going to say, I knew I recognized.
recognized him, but I was like, he's either a wrestler or a football player. Yeah, he was a famous football player and then turned actor. You could call him an actor. (laughs) I know a lot of the horror kids will know him from Destroyer. Oh, okay. An 80s gem. (laughs) I'll just drop (laughs) gem. Overlooked gem. Yeah. Okay. I don't know about overlooked. (laughs) Doug McClure, though, right? We love Doug. We know Doug. Well, we don't know Doug, but we we talked about Doug a bit in our last episode because, of course, he co-starred with Clue Gugler on The Virginian. Right. Do you think Doug and Clue have similar career trajectories in a way? Yes, definitely. I was about to say I don't think Clue went to the lows, and that sounds like a kind of dig, and I don't want to do that, but Doug went really deep into the B-movie scene in the 70s, and Clue went more TV. Mm-hmm. would be kind of the divergence between the two of them. Right. Clue was doing a lot of made-for-TV movies and also, like, random appearances on TV shows in the 70s. Yep. And then they both did horror stuff. They both dipped into horror a bit, too. Yep. My other question is regarding cameos. Do you think that cameos are at all reductive? Like, how strong of stories are these? If they need that? Is that what you're going yeah, for? Yeah, yeah, What I'm saying is, like, when we watch a movie that has a ton of cameos, and you know this one has it into the night has it (laughs) i'm gonna get you sucker has it yes all three of these movies have a lot of that very heavily reliant on the cameos and i'm wondering i mean sometimes when i watch them every time i see the person like the actor i'm like oh that's marlon brando i don't know that's the first person that popped in my head but you know like i get caught up in going oh that's you know eve plum right you know instead of actually paying attention to the story so much like you know i have to go back to it sometimes i'm just wondering like do you have that same experience you know like does it take away yeah, definitely. from the movie maybe it doesn't take away but it puts you kind of in an alternate mindset i think mm-hmm. like how we've been talking about this so far has been connection 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 because that's what this movie kind of does yeah you go from oh look there's this guy oh look there's this guy oh look there's this and it just becomes this interconnected series of things around the plot you know we kind yeah. of already made mention that the narrative is obscured for a lot of the film right because it is just kind of stuck in these moments and they're good on their own but they kind of draw away from where are we going with this now there's a way to do it well i think you know i don't think it's necessarily the worst thing a movie can do but i get where you're coming from of you know if it's too much then suddenly that's where your mind goes (laughs) right the novelty of it takes over yeah now would you call clues appearance in this movie a cameo no i mean we haven't really talked much about what he does in this movie yet we're saving it we're saving it man we're, we're building up to it right we're gonna get the clue as you might have guessed from the title of the podcast <laughs> but no he's a i won't even say a bit part like it's a supporting part it's only yeah. crucial to a few scenes of the movie but it's scenes relevant to the plot yeah he seems like he does have a lot of screen time you know when kusak and robbins aren't on the screen it's his deal going on yeah of the three movies we're talking about this is definitely i would bet there's more screen time here than the other two combined yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> You think about it, it's like, oh yeah, he's in not a lot of this movie, but a portion. It's significant, and it is a plot motivator as well, so it's important. Clue is a relatively large part of this movie. At best, it's a major subplot. Like, as you said, I think it's part of the plot to an extent. Clue plays a presidential candidate who shows up throughout the movie, and while it doesn't seem related to where the plot is going, Ivan and Josh stumble into a plot involving him. Yeah. Now, Clue, I'm not going to name names, but there's parallel to modern politicians with the character he plays. (laughs) 
the first time we see him is a TV commercial where he is standing in front of a ghetto backdrop. He reads a poem set to the classic tune, Roses are red, violets are blue. The Russians have satellite laser weapons. Why can't we too? Mm. And then he proceeds to hand out candy cigarettes to a bunch of children who are singing and dancing on the street. Oh, were they candy cigarettes? They were candy cigarettes, I yes. totally assumed that they were real cigarettes. <laughs> oh, you know, I guess maybe, but I, I thought they were candy cigarettes. I didn't look that closely. <laughs> I, maybe I was just assuming the best of Clue. <laughs> uh, the best of Norman Mart. Oh, right. Sorry, his character name is Norman Mart. And yes, we'll get the joke out of the way. His wife, played by Jessica Walter of Play Misty for Me, Arrested Development, pretty famous actress, is, of course, his name's Norman Mart. What do you think her first name is? Yes, it's Kay Mart. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Clue was actually a bigger part of this script from listening to the commentary and Nesmith and uh, Fishman talking about it. How long do you think this movie was when they first filmed the script they wrote? <laughs> um, like a million times longer? About four hours is what they say. Yeah, because it's just a bunch of goofing around. Because it's just a bunch of random stuff. Yeah. So they cut out this scene, this TV commercial with Clue. He's standing in front, I mentioned, a ghetto scene. They pan out from that and they show that it's a backdrop in front of his huge mansion. Oh. But that didn't make it into the film. They said it was in a TV version that apparently never played on TV. Okay, so like he um, wouldn't even go to that area of town. Right, they just put up a fake backdrop in front of the mansion that he lived in, which the characters end up going to during the film, interacting Mm -hmm. with him and the people around him, learning some secrets about him so that's kind of where the character comes into the plot and ends up with ivan and josh being followed around by these like hitmen right and involved in kind of a scheme to expose some of this stuff about norman mart right and that stuff includes some very lascivious behavior caught on tape right a little bit of a clue sex scandal <laughs> yeah with uh mary mary <sighs> I was going to say Mary Warnoff, God. No, Susan Tyrell. Yes, with Susan Tyrell, who uh, we know worked with Clue on uh, From a Whisper to a Scream. From a Whisper to a Scream, yes. So uh, I feel like they were friends. I almost said The Offspring, which is the other title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's also Courtney Love's part. Yeah, she's in the video with Clue mm-hmm. and Susan Tyrell, which is just weird to say out loud. <laughs> So we talked about earlier Clue's sense of humor, and off the top of your head, what's something you think Clue thinks are funny? I think he likes dick jokes and um, gross, like, just really body humor. Right, that's kind of where I was going with it, too. (laughs) There's a scene in this movie where Clue's Norman Mart is doing a press conference, and a young journalist asks him the question we all think about politicians talking about nukes. Do you think that you... Having all this interest in nukes has anything to do with penis envy, is the question asked of him. Uh-huh. And Clue gets this line, I don't remember exactly how he sets it up, but it ends with him saying, I'll throw my slab up on the yardstick against Gorby any day of the goddamn yeah. <laughs> That's a dick joke. That's a dick joke. And according to the commentary and Michael Nesmith, Clue read the script, he saw that joke, and said, that's the best joke in the movie, I want to do this. <laughs> so he chose to do the movie to do the dick joke. That's awesome. The other interesting thing about Clue's character here, according to the producer, it was based on a real-life scandal with a man named Albert Blumenthal. Blumenthal. You ever heard of Albert Blumenthal? No, I've heard of Albert Rosenfeld. I don't know. That's... Isn't that Twin Peaks? It's Twin Peaks. (laughs) It's 
Anyway, he said it was based on the Albert Blumenthal scandal, and I'd never heard of that name. Okay. And, you know, there's the bad thing about Google. Like, I can go on Google, and I can look up, you know, some guy who was in a band in 1992 or a guy that was in WWF in 1983, mm-hmm. and there's like a 40,000-word essay on every part of their life. Okay, yeah. I go Google this politician from the 1970s, and there's very little information oh. about this politician who apparently was the majority leader of the New York State Assembly and ended up facing charges for perjury and bribery for being involved in a shady nursing home operation. Oh, yeah, like a uh, angel of death type of shady nursing home operation or something? Like he was something. backing this other guy who ran these nursing homes who, of course, Department of Public Health came in and were like, there's people pooping on the floor and there's oh. people, you know, in unsafe conditions and, oh. you know, all okay. not good stuff. And apparently this dude was involved in that. I struggled to find how this connected to the Norman Mark character. I mean, other than there was a scandal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is not a character that's into a lot of CD, except for kinky sex. Which, I would think there are other scandals they could mention in that regard. But anyway, they made this character up based on this scandal and then went out and got Clue to do it because there was a dick joke. <laughs> a dick joke about Ronald Reagan versus Gorbachev. Versus Gorbachev, right. And also the other fantastic thing about that scene with the dick joke is there's a picture of Norman Mart on the buffet table mm-hmm. surrounded by a circle of hot dogs. <laughs> Hot dogs means dicks. Yes, that that is <laughs> that is one way of reading it. Alright. Yeah, so I guess Clue had a lot of fun in this movie, and that's really cool. Yeah, it seems that way. Final scene he has later in the movie, he has some really funny stuff too. Yeah, he's uh he's just like totally hamming it up too. Like it's Yes. I feel like that style of acting is <laughs> kind of uh maybe the perfect kind of acting for Clue. I know he's very serious, okay. I'm not trying to make light yes. of him or whatever, but like that style of just like he's crying and like whining at his daughter or whomever it was and it's just so funny like he knows how ridiculous it is and he's just going yeah, for it <laughs> he goes from very direct authoritative politician in the beginning of the scene mm-hmm. to then kind of that hammy sad part that you're talking about yeah it's like he's a total baby mm-hmm. <laughs> and it fits the film perfectly yeah it's delightful i would say so there's my review of clue Gulliger's performance in tape heads hammy and delightful that's fair hammy and delightful and hammy hot dogs too (laughs) hammy hot dogs i don't know that's the way i said it i I don't know know if i've ever heard that phrase and i don't think i needed to no i'm an all beef kosher girl myself that's fair let's talk about the themes of this movie now i think the biggest one is well there's that whole thing about working on spec and every artist has an experience with working on spec be it visual art, filmmaking, music, whatever. You have an experience working on spec. You have these people who are trying to get to hire you and pay you say, no, no, it's, we don't really have a budget right now, but go ahead and do it. And it'll be really great for your portfolio. Right. (laughs) You know, like that's the thing. Like, yeah, okay. It can be really great for your portfolio, but you know what? People need to make some money too. So I'm sure this is like heavily relatable for anybody who's in an art field. Now, what is this movie trying to say about having to compromise your integrity as an artist to make money right? so that you can do your dreams later? <laughs> you know, like you have these big aspirational goals 
that you're working toward and you have to do all this grunt work before yeah we only talked about a little but the other i wouldn't say cameo again uh side player in the movie don cornelius mm-hmm. playing mo fuzz the yeah. producer who puts them on spec yeah. as they make their first music videos and we talked about the first music video they do for him is the baby doll devo mm-hmm. song with the tarring and feathering with paint and <laughs> yeah. glitter and you know just them being wacky and having fun and doing mm-hmm. what they you know think could be cool and they take that back to the producer and he says i can't do anything with this (laughs) he loves it though he loves it but he can't do anything with it because it doesn't have production values (laughs) right what does production value mean production values means tits and ass according to mofas oh yeah so then they do another video for him on spec Mm -hmm. and there's a scene they talk about on the commentary that i wish they had done this is a tangent but they shot a version where ivan kind of gets upset and is like no we can't do another one on spec so mofas gives him a pen from the mofas company in the scene apparently then cusack as Ivan just like is amazed like we got this pen okay we'll do it that's what he accepts as payment the pen's the payment right and he's Uh, just like so excited to have the pen no I'm glad they cut that see I think it's funny from a standpoint of it's a little slapstick it's a little cartoony I definitely Uh the way I picture it in my head but then they get into that a lot of artists get into that point where okay I'm just gonna take anything Mm -hmm. and you know that kind of fits that point to me but then of course they do another video on spec and then no budget and all that you know I see what they're getting at like uh, some artists will take anything you know and and be happy or excited about it but I think ultimately that's kind of insulting to artists to say that oh absolutely (laughs) you know so maybe they didn't you can trick them with a pen yeah yeah you know the the video aces they have their manifesto do what you gotta do so you do what you want to do what are we gonna do what we want to do I don't know right so we do bullshit jobs so we can keep our equipment so we can do jobs on spec so that maybe one day we can do a music video i mean what's the point point is try man so like i think that this movie is saying it's okay to do things that you don't want to do first Mm -hmm. and like it's cool to have a certain kind of work ethic you know eventually you'll be rewarded with you know getting to work how you want to work right which again i think goes along with where cusack was at in his young career at the time Mm -hmm. of he was fed up with doing the same thing doing the teen roles and he saw this as a you know maybe not the best option maybe not you know gonna get him an oscar or anything obviously (laughs) but at least it was something he had a little more say in and could have more fun with. Mm -hmm. so his better off dead was the uh doing what he didn't want to do right or or doing what he had to do Mm -hmm. so that he could do tape heads what he wanted to do and then he had this huge career of random things and he actually talked about in interviews later how you know that's a common everyone knows from hollywood and probably other art industries is there's kind of that one for me one for you mindset a lot of them had Um, (laughs) yeah and i actually was reading an interview with cusack later in his career where he's like you know that's gone now people don't really give you anything now it's like six for them then maybe you'll get one right he's kind of disgruntled these days which is a little bit sad you know Uh i always picture him as that young bright-eyed kid oh man he's been in this machine forever so yeah see why he'd get a little disgruntled after a Mm -hmm. while because he seems like he's contemplative is that how you say that contemplative contemplative works for me is it he seems like he thinks about things and uh yeah stuff weighs heavily upon him sometimes this movie's obviously a cult movie yes and i mean it's very obviously a cult movie it is a cult classic i guess you would say i don't know is it too much for me to say it's like a small cult well i guess like 
then again, that's probably a better type of cult than a big cult. But, <laughs> you know, there are different levels of cult classics. Yeah, you can call just about anything a cult classic movie. No, mm-hmm. I mean, like, Buckaroo Banzai is a, a cult movie, yet it's, you know, universally adored right. by everybody. This movie, I know, is criticized, especially with people looking back on it. It's criticized for being a cult movie that was made to be a cult movie. Like, it's prepackaged, almost. Yeah, so, a little bit on the nose. Yeah, like, was it made to be hip? Or is it hip? You know, can a cult movie be deliberately made as a cult movie? I don't know. I mean, I guess. <laughs> Part of the reason why this movie doesn't exactly click with me, and it should, like, there are so many check marks, you know, uh-huh. that should click with me, but for some reason, it just doesn't quite get there all the way. And I think part of it is that it seems like it was written to be quirky instead of just being quirky at some point, you know? I mean, there are obviously some good jokes in here. There really are. But there are some things that seem a little disingenuine to me. And it has to do with, uh, I mean, maybe I'm being picky. (laughs) But like stuff like at the beginning when uh, Cusack and Tim Robbins have their little like secret handshake Uh and stuff like that, I'm like, this is totally just fabricated. Like, (laughs) Like it just seems over the top like it's too much like it's made so that people will try to emulate it so question on that for you Uh uh-huh does it affect that who the stars are um like we think of cusack and robbins as mainstream people to an extent yeah like is it because i think i kind of feel similarly to an extent and i part of me wonders if that's whenever i see you know an actor or actress filmmaker that we know for doing one thing actively trying to be subversive culty Mm -hmm. Is there a little bit of, you know, that just doesn't seem true? It might be, you know, especially with Tim Robbins. Like, I I remember watching his films growing up. I watched Bull Durham. He always seemed just kind of a dummy. I don't know. The only other association I have with him is he's married to Susan Sarandon, you know? Oh, wait, he did Bob Roberts. Like, that wasn't exactly dumb. But I don't know. Maybe I just didn't really have too much of a regard for Tim Robbins for most of his career. I don't know. He was just kind of an actor that I knew. Kind Mm -hmm. of there. I mean, as we talked about this movie, we've mentioned him kind of oh and also tim robbins yeah 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 (laughs) tim robbins was there (laughs) right like he's fine in the movie he brings balance to cusack being offbeat yeah cusack was watching old movies trying to kind of find his character yeah like tony curtis movies and stuff yeah tony curtis uh sweet smell success they actually mentioned on the commentary they like took that from the ucla film vault to show it to him oh because they wanted him to know that and then also robert de niro in king of comedy mm-hmm. and then the third movie they mentioned i don't even know but i'm gonna mention here since i know the information the falcon and the snowman with sean penn oh okay i don't know that movie so i don't know you know what he drew from that but apparently that was one of the characters he drew inspiration from in that though like i don't think that they exactly act like they're putting it on too much you know like it does seem natural but it's also i just i don't know how to describe it i'm just a little bit cynical about it i guess i get you like i believe that they're friends in this movie yeah and they're friends in real life yeah exactly so exactly i believe their performances is just the characters are just a little too quirky for quirky sake i think okay i can see that and there are other things throughout the movie like uh, belinda clue's daughter who is their roommate and ends up being josh's lover but oh one major part of this that really turned me off was there's the part where belinda and the other lady the rock journalist they start like a scuffle and so they're gonna have like some weird nunchuck fight or something oh yeah yeah uh <laughs> ninja bitches in heat is the yeah. line from cusack 
Trek, I believe. Yeah, 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 that's right. Like, that just comes out of nowhere and doesn't really Yeah, it didn't have, have a choice. It doesn't have a resolve either. They just stop because Josh and uh, Ivan come into the room. It's really, okay, what was the point of that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that other, the love interest for Cusack, she was from Dallas, I believe? Yeah, it's, it's Mary Crosby. Yeah, so then that's another one where I look at it kind of like, okay, this is mainstream person just doing quirky. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying they can't. They're actors. That's their job. <laughs> but it does feel a little, kind of like you were saying, you know, not real. Yeah, I don't know. It's not enough to make me hate this movie or anything, because I do no. enjoy watching it. Yeah, I, I think it's a fun movie. I kind of think it overstays its welcome a bit towards mm. the middle. You know, I, I get a little bit tired in the middle. Yeah. But then it comes back strong at the end, so. And also, we've talked a lot about Alex Cox, Fishman. Mm-hmm. Like, it's in the shadow of some of their other stuff. Right, right, true. I mean, Repo Man's probably my favorite movie. Yeah. And so, you know, even though Alex Cox wasn't directly involved in this production, like, mm-hmm. there's definite influence there. You know, what I was also thinking about is in that memoir, Cox is talking about how the production company that Peter McCarthy and Jonathan Wax had was in Venice. Mm-hmm. During this time in the early 80s was when Clue and his family were living in Venice. You know, they were renting that apartment in Venice Beach, like, before they moved back to Tulsa. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if they kind of were a part of the same community at that time. Like, if they ran into each other and maybe that's how Clue, like, really got involved with this movie. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah. That makes me really want to know more about the Venice Beach scene in the early 80s. Maybe it was cool, you know, before it was, I don't know, a popular beach or whatever. I'm sure it was gentrified at some point. But anyway, yeah, this movie being a cult movie, though, like Repo Man, actually, this was not well received by audiences at first. Mike Nesbeth was disappointed, <laughs> of mm. course, low turnout. So they took it to Boston after it premiered in New York and LA. Didn't do so well. They took it to Boston, the same thing he did with Repo Man, and they got a huge response in Boston. So that's what ended up getting them a wider release. It happens a lot, especially when production houses don't have confidence in their movie exactly, or if they're going through troubles because I I know there was a lot of troubles with this production right and it was filmed in like early 87 and then Mm -hmm. kind of you know in that in between with whatever the production studio they had and then NBC being involved it was NBC and also the De Laurentiis group, which they were going bankrupt at the time. So uh, Bill Fishman talks about how during the production, he would just start seeing things disappearing, like uh, props, stuff like, you know, like on a production, you would have desks and things for people to work at. Mm-hmm. All that stuff just started disappearing. And he was like, oh, no. So the writing was on the wall. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so then, you know, De Laurentiis finally went under and the film was tied up in bankruptcy proceedings for months, mm-hmm. months. And, and then it got picked up by Avenue Pictures and then they played it at TIFF, the Toronto International the Toronto. Film Festival. Hashtag TIFF. I thought you said tips, like a bar or something oh, tips. at first. And then I, I realized what you said. <laughs> tips, gotcha. No, but yeah, anyways, pretty long story for this movie, I guess. It's kind of, you know, that small production, but then you see how big everything involved was with all the behind the scenes, all the different people involved. A huge amount of talent into just this little now cult maybe intentionally maybe not (laughs) flick that i feel like it's known but it's not really even in the major cult conscience these days Hmm. i mean it's on dvd from like 2003 maybe and that's the last release of it i don't think you're gonna find it streaming on the mainstream sites or anything oh it's on tubi when people yeah it is on oh well there you go well go for it people although we've just been saying not the best (laughs) thing to 
take your time but it is a fun <laughs> movie it's yeah. it's unique it's got some good jokes it's got great clue humor and if you know you're here for yeah. clue like we are it's a piece of his puzzle worth seeing of the three movies we're talking about i mean it's definitely probably the most well we already said it's the most clue content and it's also i think the best range of his talent well yeah sure definitely see. agree with that so that's the story as you can see the movie's got really cool stars in it and even cooler uh, music and as for me how do i feel about it as a filmmaker well it feels great to be able to look you right in the eye and say get together a group of friends have a big meal and watch tape heads so up next we have john landis movie called into the night i'm a fan of this one Hey Clue fans, Mike and I got so excited about these movies that we went crazy over time. So stay tuned for more of Clue's 80s comedies coming soon. Get a Clue is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit ouchmyego.com where you can find more great shows such as What Did We Just Watch and Vincent Price's Laugh. Each episode is researched and performed by LB Bargeron and The Mike. Visit tmdfps.blogspot.com for The Mike's double feature picture show. Special thanks to our illustrious producer Andrew Bargeron for designing our super rad logo. Visit jemetsko.com for more of his fancy pants artwork. And last but not least, a big thank you to the brilliant Adriana Gober for writing and performing our amazing theme song. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe.